Technology. <laughs> um, really quickly, uh, I, was, I was messaged by one of our board members who is um, well up north and said, don't forget to remind people about this. Like, the beauty of technology, I missed something, and as I walked back, I had a reminder from someone um, hours away about something, and so the beauty of technology does connect us. Um, I was asked to remind you that uh, on January 9th, um, as was voted at the uh, Budget meeting or general? One of our meetings, the November meeting, um, will be my ordination examining council. And so we have to send, we did send uh, official delegates, but anyone from our church is welcome to attend as a, as a, a participant, as someone who watches. Now, you don't get to vote, uh, but you get to participate if you'd like to hear. Um, if you'd like to basically watch uh, what will probably be, hopefully, less than a few hours, but a couple hours of me being grilled, by other pastors and other people, and you think that will be an entertaining use of a Saturday afternoon. Uh, it's on January 9th at 3 p.m. It will be via Zoom, so you'll have to attend virtually. But if you'd like to participate, if you'd like to watch that, if you're curious, uh, you can email Lynn, uh, just email Avenue Rudder Rogers, and just say, I'd like to get an invite to that, and she'll note it down, and when we send the invites out, uh, we'll make sure that you're included. And so, uh, here we are in our fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, I've run out of suits. Uh, this is my last Advent suit. Next year, I will purchase a fourth, uh, and then my collection will be complete, uh, and uh, I guess I'll have to move on to other holidays. Uh, the, the place where I buy these has Thanksgiving-themed ones, uh, so there will be no shortage uh, of festive suits. Um, so last week when I started out my sermon, I started out talking about Christmas cookies, and I talked about how I was missing Christmas cookies uh, and how I don't know how to bake. And so in response to that, uh, quite a few of you actually dropped off some Christmas cookies. Uh, so they dropped off some Christmas cookies. Some were just in my office when I showed up. Uh, some came by, and some showed up today as well. And so it was very generous. Thank you for the, the Christmas cookies. I do love Christmas cookies. Uh, and so thank you for seeing that uh, I didn't have any and, and showing up with those Christmas cookies. Uh, and so this week, I'm going to talk about how I don't have enough sports cars or boats. Um, <laughs> and we'll see what shows up this week in the office. Uh, I'm just seasoned. This week, uh, we've talked so far about joy. We've talked about hope. We've talked about peace. Uh, and today, we're going to talk about love. So we're going to talk about love. Uh, Jesse talked about love. I missed Jesse's video as well. That's why everything was out of order. Um, I handed out sheets for last week's service, so I apologize to everyone that I threw off uh, base there. Uh, but Jesse spoke about love, and we, we sang a bit about love, and our Advent candle video uh, talked about love. And so we're going to talk about love today, too. And so we asked that question of what is love? Now, love is a notoriously hard-to-define thing. We all could, we, we know love, we, we, we sense it. We can say, I feel loved, or I'm feeling unloved, or I'm feeling a lack of love. We know love when we see it or feel it, but to define it, it's notoriously a difficult thing. And I think one of the reasons because of that, or sorry, of that, is because the English language generally kind of sucks. Uh, the English language is, is not a great language. It's kind of an ugly language when we consider languages. And the word love in the English language means so many different things. We have one word, love, and it means so many different things. Like, for example, I can say that I love God. I can say I love Jesus. I can say I love the Holy Spirit. Or I can say I love my wife and I love my son. Or I can say I love cake. I love pizza. I love passion flakies. I can say I love all of those things, and all of those things are true. I do love all of those things. But certainly, the love that I have for pizza and the love that I have for Jesus are different things. Certainly, they are different things. And so when I say I love each of those, what do I really mean? What is love? 
Uh, I think sometimes when we ask a, a complicated question like this, uh, it's best to try to get a really simple answer. And so I, I think in, in the search of a simple answer, we'll go to the simplest people that I know or the simplest, most straightforward people that we know, uh, which would be kids. And so here's a video of 100 kids trying to explain love. Oh, I'm giving the one second it's coming from Ryan. <laughs> what is love? Um... Uh, let's see. Uh, no idea. I do not. I don't know too much about it. Love means like you love someone, love something, love them. You fall in love with another person. What is love? The things that you like love people. Love is like a way of saying, I got you. Huh? I got you. A what? I love you, is what you're saying. Oh, I love you? Yeah. Aw, thank you. But, uh, what is love? It's where you care about somebody and you live with them and you just love them. Like your boyfriend or your mom or dad. Do you have a boyfriend? Love means when you be nice and not mean and... You're interested in a person. It's a feeling of happiness. It's a sign of happiness. Love is feeling. 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 A good feeling. A warm feeling. It's a feeling and kind of a taste. Where in your body do you feel love? Oh, uh, mostly to the right, but sometimes the left. In your heart. Hot. Hot. My feet. What is love? Love is something that everyone has, but they still have to find. Sometimes you can get mad. Sometimes feels uncomfortable. It's an emotion. A heartbeat. Love smells like flowers. Love being like butterflies. It could mean different things, like you could like love your family. Who's some people that you love? My friend, my mom. What is love? That's what is love. What is love? Huh. Yeah, it's beautiful. I don't know. I don't know love. Love is a thing that you like. It's when you like 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 somebody. You like someone. When people like each other. A lot. A lot. Like a lot, a lot. When two people really, 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 really like each other. So much. If you like someone and you want to marry them. That is when you get married. You get married. You have like a good relationship. What is love? A lion. A fire. What is love? A uh, angel. To me, love is disgusting. Love is not being fake. When two people find each other in the world, carry for someone. Caring about someone with, with your whole heart. That you can trust. Someone you trust. It's a passion thing. When you're really happy. Mushy gushy. Kissing somebody and hugging somebody. When you hug someone. Two people kiss. Kissing. Kissing, kissing, kissing. Mm -hmm. Love? Love is, is like
There were some similar answers in there, but for, for the most part, there was 100 kids that got asked, uh, and they probably had about 70 different answers of what is love. Uh, it seems that we're not the only ones who struggle to define in a concrete, exact way, this is love. And so if, if kids couldn't give us a straightforward, simple answer, uh, then perhaps we'll look somewhere else. Uh, and so we're going to look today at our scripture for the day. Uh, we're going to look at our scripture and see uh, if we can answer the question of what is love by looking at what I see as three different examples of love in our scripture. Uh, so perhaps by seeing these three different examples of love, we'll better be able to answer the question of uh, what is love. Now all the examples that we're going to look at, they're all different and they all give us a different flavor to the answer uh, to the question of what is love. So today I'm going to read our scripture for us, and it comes from Luke chapter 2, and it's verses 25 to 35. It contains a section called Simeon's Song, which is also known as the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, And so I'm going to read it for you today, and I believe I'm reading from the NIV. And so it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and it will be a sign that will be spoken against, as that the hearts of many, or sorry, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There we have it. So there in our we have series it. looking at the in original songs of Christmas or the four carols of Christmas, we have the final one, which is Simeon's song. Now, in this, we see a few examples of love. And so maybe by looking at some examples of love, we will better be prepared to answer the question of what is love. And so the first place that I want to point out that I see love in this section is the love that Mary and Joseph have for God. So Mary and Joseph, they love God. Now, you might be looking at the verses that I just read and wondering, where in the heck did I draw that conclusion from, from those verses? Now, the reason that I can say with, with confidence that Mary and Joseph love God is because of the historical context of what is going on in these verses. So in this part of the nativity story, we have Mary and we have Joseph, and they're headed up to Jerusalem. It says they're headed up to Jerusalem. And it says while they're there, this is where they talk about Simeon. And so they're headed up to Jerusalem. Now, if we take a step back, we know that it has been eight days since Jesus' birth. Because in the verse right before this, it says it's been eight days since Jesus' birth. And he's just been circumcised. circumcised. So eight days ago, they have a baby. Then they circumcise this baby, which is eight days later. And they name the baby. They gave the baby the name Jesus, as told by the angel. And so why are they heading to Jerusalem? For anyone who has had children, you'll know that it's not exactly uh, told to go on a big traveling trip when you have an eight-day-old baby, especially an eight-day-old baby that has just been circumcised. It's not exactly advised to go on a long journey. And so why are they taking this eight-day-old baby who's just had this medical procedure, why are they taking him traveling? I mean, it seems a bit soon. 
But the reason is because of the Jewish law, the historical context of the Jewish law. So Jewish law says that eight days after a baby is born, or after the child uh, or son is born, the baby is to be circumcised. So the baby's supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day and given his name. And then 33 days after that, the mother is supposed to present an offering at the temple, a sin offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Now you might be wondering, why did Mary, why did she have to go to Jerusalem to present a sin offering? That's something that you did when there was were the sin, or why you'd have to go and atone. And so according to a Levitical law, or according to the law in Leviticus, uh, anyone who touched blood from a woman's birth was called unclean. So most of the Levitical laws, we have a lot of them that are about more clean and unclean is what they're talking about. And so Mary would have been considered unclean because she just had a baby. And so not that she had done any particular action wrong that she was atoning in sin with, or atoning for with her sin offering, but simply according to the law, she was now considered unclean, and so she had to go and offer a sin offering to be considered clean again. So according to this Jewish law, the baby was circumcised eight days after, and then on the 40th day, or sorry, the 41st day, uh, 40 days after the birth, the mother would go, they would go to the temple, and they would present that sin offering, and then she would be able to consider herself clean again. Now, if the baby was a boy, that time was actually, or sorry, a girl, that time was actually doubled. So if it's a boy, it was 40 days, but if it was a girl, it was longer. This is all in accordance with the Jewish laws of clean versus unclean. And so while the mother is there, Mary in this case, she presents this animal offering. According to Jewish law, it would actually be a burnt sacrifice, and usually it would be a lamb. So usually you would offer a lamb. But if you read our section right before, I believe it's verses 22 to 24, you read that she wasn't bringing a lamb. It says she was bringing two birds. According to Levitical law, if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring two turtle doves or a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons and offer those instead. So if you couldn't afford the lamb, you could offer this sacrifice. So this is just a quick note to realize that Jesus was not born into wealth because our verse doesn't even mention a lamb. Our verse just says that they were offering these birds. Right? This is all that it mentions. So we know that Jesus was not born into a wealthy family off of this verse. And so we know he's born into poverty. So anyways, the offering is being presented. Mary is going to be able to be considered herself clean. But that's not all that's going on here. There's another law that says while she's there, the baby is to be presented to the Lord. The baby is to be presented to the Lord or offered or dedicated to the Lord. According to Levitical law, the baby is to be presented to God and redeemed by paying a price of five shekels. I have no idea how much five shekels is worth in today's culture. I could have looked that up, but they had to pay a price of five shekels. Basically, what they're doing here is they're taking their son or taking their child and they're offering it to God because of what happened in light of Passover. They're saying God had a right to all the firstborn males. God had a right to all the firstborn males to call them into his service. But because God had already set out a tribe, a specific tribe to do that, the tribe of Levi, he's already got a tribe specifically called to his service, the firstborn children are to be redeemed by paying this five-shekel offering or this five-shekel price in token of God's rightful claim to that child. So they offer their child to God, they pay this five-shekel price, and they redeem their child. And so it's just this way of honoring and recognizing that God has a claim to that child. And so here in the first couple verses or the historical context of where we're at, we see several Jewish ceremonies or several Jewish customs. We see the circumcision, we see the naming, the presentation of the child, we have this dedication process, we have uh, the purification rites of Mary. We have all these ceremonies or all these rites. And you might be asking, how does this show love for God? Well, it shows how devout and how dedicated Mary and Joseph were to God's rules and his customs. It shows how dedicated they were to worship of the Lord. 
And, and just to put it into perspective why this is important, is we're talking about Mary here. We're talking about Mary, who is about to have God's child. She's about to have uh, God in flesh. Is about to be born through her. This angel came and said, you're going to have this amazing blessing. This amazing thing is going to happen, right? She's about to give birth to God's physical child. I think if anyone in the history of Jewish custom was going to be allowed to skip these customs of traveling to Jerusalem and doing all these things, if anyone was going to get a kind of a, a free pass on that, it would be Mary giving birth to Jesus, God's son. I mean, after all, think about it logically, uh, these customs were for humans. Uh, they were for uh, us sinful humans, these atoning sacrifices. And so these are ceremonies that were put in place for us. You know, this is Jesus we're talking about. This, Mary knows this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. If anyone was going to be kind of allowed to skip that, it could have been him. But they didn't. None of that happened. He was born and he was, they, were, they, were, they adhered to the law. So the fact that Mary and Joseph adhered to the law, they were so devout, they were dedicated Jews, they showed this deep level of reverent respect and love for God. They showed a deep level of worship for God. Their love was reverent and deep. It was a love that ultimately said, yes, this, this child is, is your child, and this is a special thing that we are a part of, God, but ultimately, we're still just humans, and you're still God. Ultimately, you are God still, and you are worthy to be worshipped and adored and respected. We are not somehow above your laws simply because this special thing is happening in our lives. Mary and Joseph said that that doesn't put us as better than anyone else. We are still humans, and we are still under your feet. We are still to worship at your feet. So they had this love for God that included this element of respect. And it says, or sorry, I see, when I look at this, I have this, this idea that the love that they had included a small element of fear. And I say the word small element because I think we automatically jump to the wrong conclusion when I say fear. So I think they had a love for God that had an element of fear. Not a fear that makes you run and hide. Not a fear like you would, you would have a, a fear where you avoid this thing. Uh, but a fear that says, uh, I'm just a small little human and I'm dealing with the God of all things. I'm just this tiny, insignificant human, and I'm dealing with the God that created the entire universe, a universe so big we still have no idea how far so I'm just it extends. This little thing. So I'm just this little and so thing. when I approach this big God, I'm going to approach this God with respect, with humility, with a bit of trembling that says, I know who you are. Francis Chan has a great book called Crazy Love, and actually, uh, I'm in the middle of preparing a, like, 15-week series on this, uh, this book. And so in his book, he talks about a lot of one of the reasons he thinks we have so many lukewarm Christians. He thinks one of the reasons we have so many lukewarm Christians is because we have forgotten who God really is. We have forgotten who this God that we sing about, that we talk about, that we pray to, we have forgotten who he really is. Instead of we're looking at God for who he is, we've made him into this small, sort of powerful, a bit more powerful than us humans kind of being. We've turned him into this thing that he's simply not. And we've forgotten that God is so much more than that. God is so much more infinite in that. Francis Chan, he says, because we don't often think about the reality of who God is, we quickly forget that he alone is worthy to be worshipped and loved. And we are to fear him. So the first example of love that I see in this section is this deep, reverent, uh, respectful, and fearful love that Mary and Joseph have for their God. And so then we move on to the second example. And the second example that I love that I see is Simeon's love for God. And this is whole, uh, the whole song is, is Simeon's song here. And so we see Simeon's love for God. 
Now, it describes Simeon as a man who was devout and righteous, uh, one who was in touch with the Holy Spirit. Uh, A lot of commentators actually have this suspicion, based off of how he's described here, that Simeon is part part of this really uh, weird group of Jews that uh, I believe they're called the quiet in the land, and they're this part of Jews that were just so deeply spiritual. So it doesn't outright say it here, but they have a suspicion that he was part of this very spiritual group of followers, one who was so faithful and deeply committed. Regardless of if he was or he wasn't, what it does say is that the Holy Spirit is upon him, or the Holy Spirit is on him. Now, the way that that phrase is written, the Holy Spirit is on him, the way it's written in the original language, it actually gives this idea that this is not a one-time thing. This wasn't a, the Holy Spirit came upon him once, and he gave this great song. But rather, it gives the idea that the Holy Spirit is on him continually, that he's constantly in one-in-one with the Holy Spirit. He's constantly walking together with the Holy Spirit, that he and the Holy Spirit have this communion that is just always going on. It's written in that way that gives this deep relationship that he has. In fact, it says that Simeon and the Holy Spirit, they had such a, a deep relationship, or God had such a close relationship with Simeon that God had promised Simeon that he would not even die until he saw the Christ. It says you won't die until you see the Messiah. You won't die is what we see there. So here we have Simeon. He just happens to come to the temple, and he just happens to come at the right exact time that Mary and Joseph were going to be there, were going to bring their, uh, their child to be dedicated, and they were going to have this time. And I don't believe that's a coincidence, because it actually says that the Holy Spirit directed him to come. So he was told to come. So not only was he promised, like, yeah, you're going to see the Christ one day, the Holy Spirit said, you should go now. Go to the temple right now. Uh, you should just go at this point. And so he went, and that's when he sees uh, Mary and Joseph and the baby. And where I see Simeon's love for God, it's, it's in a bunch of places, but I see it specifically in verse 28. And it says, he took him up in his arms. This is Simeon and Jesus. It says, he took him up in his arms. He took Jesus up in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said. And then he brings forth this beautiful song. He brings forth this beautiful song of Simeon. Now, the song of Simeon itself, I could have turned that whole thing into a sermon. There's a lot of great notes in there. There's a lot of stuff I could be discussing. But I don't want to point out what Simeon said. That's for another time. But I want to point out what Simeon did here. He comes into the temple, right? It says he's, he's constantly in touch with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit says, go to the temple. And so he goes to the temple. He comes into the temple, and he sees Mary and Joseph. And the first thing it says he does is he grabs the baby, and he lifts the baby up, and he praises God. He just grabs the baby, lifts the baby up, and he praises God, and he brings out this song. What this says is Simeon immediately recognized the baby as Jesus the Christ. He immediately recognized that this baby Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, was the one that God had said, you won't die until you see this. It's not like Mary and Joseph walked into the temple with a sign saying like, hey, we got God's kid here, this is God's child, uh, the Messiah, who wants an autograph, get a photo with the baby, right? They weren't walking around saying those kinds of things. They weren't doing that. But nonetheless, when they walk into the temple, Simeon recognizes this baby as the Messiah. He recognizes this baby as the Messiah. And how is that possible? Now you think about that one. I think, like, how did he know? Because it doesn't say the Holy Spirit told him, hey, say, Simeon, it's him over there. Right? It says he, they walked in and he just recognized him. And I think it's possible because we recognize those we spend time with. We recognize those we love. We recognize those we are close to. And I was thinking about this all week, and I realized that we have one of the best physical examples of that concept, we recognize those we love, right now in our culture today. It's because of these things we're wearing on our face, our masks, right? We wear masks whenever we're out in public. We wear them when we go to the store or grocery store. We're wearing them in church right now. We wear them, and we have to wear them most of the day. 
And so we all have to wear them. And sometimes what I've noticed is that when we're wearing masks, we don't recognize who's behind that mask, right? We might not recognize them right away. Uh, I was thinking about this. I went into sport check the other day, and uh, the, the manager of the store was there. He's my boss. I haven't seen him in a year and a half. Um, but I recognized him right away because he had his little name tag on, and he's the boss. So obviously I recognized him. So I was just standing there with Janice, and I recognized him. He walked right by me. Walked right by me. Didn't say anything. And so as he was walking by, I said, hey, hey, Dean, Dean. And he turns around, and he kind of gave me one of these, like, who are you? I was like, Dean, it's, it's Lucas, it's Lucas. And he goes, oh, Lucas, oh, hey, hey, good to see you. And immediately once I introduced myself, when he heard me say my name and everything, he recognized me. But because of the mask, and he hadn't seen me in a year, he didn't recognize me. He had no idea who I was. And Dean and I are quite, quite we've texted in the last year. We, I, I've, I see him on occasion. Uh, I hadn't seen him physically in the year, but we text, we talk. And so he didn't recognize me. And I thought about that when I was writing this. And I thought, what about my wife? My wife, if she goes out and buys a new mask, she ordered a new mask on Amazon this week, and she said she didn't like the one she had. She ordered a new mask. Now, even though she's going to have a new mask, I'm still going to recognize her. She's going to put it on, and I'm not going to go, oh, who is that, right? She's gonna, I'm going to recognize who that is. I'm going to recognize my wife. And why? Well, because I love my wife. I spend lots of time with my wife. I recognize her eyes, her hair, her voice. I recognize the way she walks. I'll probably recognize the baby she's carrying while she's walking. Right? And I can see my wife from far off on the other side of the store, and I know it's her. I will recognize her. I'll see her from far away, and I'll say, oh, that's my wife. And I recognize her, even though she's wearing a mask, because I love her and spend time with her. Because I love her and spend time with her, I'll recognize her immediately. We recognize those we spend time with. We recognize those that we are close to, those that we love. Right? Our first time back in church... When we were wearing masks, it might have been difficult to recognize people that you hadn't probably seen in six or seven months, thinking like, oh, who is that behind the mask, right? I haven't seen you eight months. But now that you see the same people every week or the same people that you associate with, it's easier to recognize them because you spend time with them. You're close to them. And so Simeon recognized Jesus as God's son because he spent so much time with God. He was so close to God. He was so in touch with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was always upon him, it says. And so when he sees God's son, when he sees God in flesh, he just recognized him right away. He immediately was like, that's the Christ. Because he was so close to God, he just recognized him. Because he loved God so much, he recognized who God's son was. So the second example that we see of love here is that a love that recognizes those we are closest to, a love that recognizes those because we spend so much time with them. I read an article this week, after I had mostly finished up, I read an article this week that asked the question, essentially, if Jesus walked into your sanctuary on Sunday morning, would you recognize him? And now, before you all say, yes, duh, Luke, his face is on the stained glass window right behind you, of course I'd recognize him, right? Let me just remind you that Jesus looks nothing like this white person on our stained glass windows. He wouldn't have been white having come from the Middle East where he was born, right? And so let me just remind you, we don't have a photo of Jesus depicted on our wall, so he wouldn't look exactly like that. So I ask again, if Jesus walked in on a Sunday morning, would we recognize him automatically? And I, the, 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 the article ended with the same question that I'm going to say, and it just basically says that if, yes, you would recognize him, it's likely because you spend so much time with him. And if you wouldn't recognize him, perhaps you're not spending enough time with him. Right? Don Aparto said that knowledge about God is not a substitute for knowing God. It is not a substitute for a relationship with God. And I think that there are a lot of Christians in church pews on Sunday mornings that we know a lot about God. We don't necessarily know God. The second example of love that I see is Simeon's love, a love that recognizes his beloved. 
And so we come to the third example, or the, the final example, I should say, uh, of the love that I see here. And it's the love that Mary had for her son. And it's in this love that Mary had for her son. So Mary loved her son, of course. Um, that should go without saying. We're talking about the love of a mother here. Uh, this is one of the deepest types of love, I think, that exists. Sons, I've learned that sons especially can pretty much do no wrong when it comes to their mothers. I don't know how it's like with daughters because I'm not a daughter, but I know that sons can pretty much do no wrong when it comes to the mothers. Mothers just have such a deep love for their kids. But love does not come without pain. Love does not come without pain. And Simeon's song that he brings forth here, it's a song of praise and a song of prophecy, but if you read it, it's not all good. The very end, it starts to take almost a weird turn. You start to see, like, what's, what's this section here? In verse 35, specifically, Simeon says, he turns to Mary and he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul, too. And a sword will pierce through your soul. That's a weird bit of prophecy. What does that mean? Simeon is specifically talking about the pain that Mary is going to experience because of Jesus' death on the cross. He is talking about the agony that she is going to go through. She's going to watch her son beaten, tortured, and hung on a cross until he dies. That's what she's going to watch happen to her son. And she will be in agony because she loves her son. If Mary didn't love him, I mean, it would possibly or probably still be hard, but because she has such a great love for him, that agony is going to be even more. An example that I can think about in our modern context is funerals. Uh, and funerals are something that we have all had experience with. Funerals are hard no matter what. No matter whose funeral it is, a funeral is a very hard time. Sometimes they're, you know, still a happy time, meaning if it's perhaps a very old person that lived a wonderful life, we still have elements of happiness, but it is still a time of sadness and in grief and in loss as we say goodbye to a person. But I think we would all agree that as hard as funerals are, a funeral for a close loved one is always harder than a funeral for a distant friend or a funeral for a stranger. Because love is not without pain. Love is not without pain. So see, even though Simeon says this to Mary, though, he says to Mary, here's all these things that your son will do. Also, a sword is going to pierce your soul. Even though he says that, she still spends her life loving her son. She knows what's going to happen at the end. Now, she doesn't know exactly what's going to happen here, but she, she probably remembered this weird prophecy that this guy said about her son. And so she knows that in the end, there's going to be this massive pain, but she still loves her son no matter what. Because love says... Yes, I'm sure there are going to be hard times. Yes, there's going to be hardship and heartaches, but it is worth it for the love. Marriages are like that. If you've been married, you know that. Marriage is like that. Anyone who's going to be married to the fact that marriages are not all roses and sunshine all the time. There's a lot of roses and sunshine, but there are also sometimes arguments. There are disagreements, perhaps even fights. There are discussions where you are simply on the other side of each other, and you might be at odds. And maybe those go on for a couple minutes. Maybe those go on for a couple minutes. Maybe it goes on for a couple days. Who knows? It happens, and in marriages, there, there are simply, there are hard times. But you don't give up on the marriage after the first hard time. You would never give up on the marriage after just one fight, saying, well, we had a fight, it's over, we're done. Right? If, if, imagine if that's how we approached relationships. We might not even make it to marriage after the first fight. We don't approach a marriage just giving up after the first hard time because you stick it through, you work through it, and you say that this love is worth it. The love is worth going through this hard time. The love is worth working through this hard time. And our relationship with God is not different. In our life as Christians, or in our lives as Christians, uh, there will be hard times. Yet somehow, for some reason, often we buy into this lie that when we give our lives to Jesus, when we enter into this loving relationship with God, that everything will become sunshine and roses. 
okay, we've given our lives to God, therefore, everything will be easy now. And that's just simply not how it is. It's just simply not the truth. We know that it's not. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. He says, in this life, you will have hardship. So Jesus himself said, there are going to be very hard times in this life. There's going to be hard times. Sometimes there is going to be really, really hard times. But real love doesn't give up just because it's gotten hard. Real love pushes through, it works through, it carries on through those hard times knowing that the love is worth it. Real love sees through the hard times and knows that there will be hard times even to come and still says it's worth it. And so there we have it. We have three examples of love, uh, the three that I said I would tell you about. And hopefully this helps us answer the question a little bit about love. We can see that uh, love respects the other. Love is a deep, reverent, respectful thing. And the love that we have for God is a love that includes that we should fear him. We should approach him with trembling with his great power. We see that love recognizes its beloved. We spend time with our, our, our beloved. We spend time with them. We, we are in a relationship with them. We are close to them. And so we recognize our beloved. And we also see that love knows there will be hard times to come and there will be hard times in our future and yet we endure we go through those things we make it diff through those difficult seasons but i think that before we end there is perhaps one more example of love that i should give there's one more example that really helps us answer the question of what is love the final example in this section here is i think that we see god's love for us i think we see god's love for us in the Song of Simeon, we see a lot of examples of God's love for us. Simeon talks all about it. His whole song is talking about it. Now, Simeon specifically, he was told that he wouldn't die before he saw the Christ. And here he is, and he sees the Christ, and his response is awesome. His response is basically, he says, well, I can go and die now, because God, you came through on your promise, and probably nothing else is going to come close to this. Right? He basically says, well, God, you've come through on your promise. That's kind of all I had in store. I'm good to go now. Right? He knows that everything else is kind of going to pale in comparison to meeting the Christ. He knows God has just come through on his promise, and so he says, God, I was simply waiting for you to come through on your promise, and you've come through on this promise, and I'm content to go now. I'm happy to go. And so God came through on that promise to Simeon, and God always follows through on his promises. He always comes through on his promises, and I think we see God's love in that, in that he always comes through on his promises. And in this part here, we see three promises that God follows through on. And I'm just going to quickly highlight these three promises that God follows through on. And the first one, or the first, I guess it's really two, is that God has promised that salvation would be for all eventually. God promises salvation would be available for all. In verse 32, Simeon says that this child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles, a guide, a light that illuminates the darkness. So you think about what that means. It means the Gentiles were previously living without a light, so in the darkness, and Jesus is now that light. So now the Gentiles have a hope. The Gentiles have a way. The Gentiles have an answer to salvation, which is Jesus. So the Jesus is the first promise, or the first promise is that Jesus is God's answer to salvation for the Gentiles. In verse 32, it also says that this child will be for your glory or sorry, for glory to your people of Israel. It'll be for your glory to your people of Israel. And so this isn't talking about making the people of Israel elevated to a place of more importance than everyone else, saying like the, the people of Israel will be glorified and will be looked at the best and the, the coolest and the, the most important, but rather it's talking about elevating them to a glory of eternal 
importance. It's again talking about that this salvation, this child will be the salvation for your children, Israel, as well. This child will be the glory for your people of Israel. So this will be, again, this is salvation. This is God's answer to salvation for God's people. So the first two promises are God's answer to salvation for the Gentiles and God's answer to the salvation for the Jews are both Jesus. And the third promise uh, is that we see in verse 34. This one's not so uh, maybe nice. It says, This child is appointed for the rising and the fall of many. This imagery, it talks about in a couple other verses right beside it, but it says this imagery of the rising and the falling of many, or the dividing of many, this is not something that Luke came up with on his own. It's not something that Luke just saw Simeon come up with and say, oh, that's great, I'm going to put that in there. This imagery that uh, Simeon uses, that Luke records, is actually pulled directly from Isaiah. We see it twice in Isaiah. We see it in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 15, and in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to read chapter 8, 14 to 15, and just see the similarities there. It says, He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble. He'll be a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, and they will be snared and captured. So it was told long ago that the Messiah would come and he would be the thing that causes the rising and the falling. He would be the judge. He would be the thing that divides those who are truly followers from those who are just here for a good time. From those who are truly followers to those who are, you know, lukewarm. The Messiah would split the nation or would split the world into two. Those for him and those against him. Jesus did that on earth and he's doing it for eternity too. On earth, Jesus constantly pointed out those who were truly devoted, those who were really here to worship and sit at God's feet, and those who were here for their own glory, and those who were here for their own profit. Jesus pointed out that lukewarm was not good enough. Lukewarm was simply not good enough. You needed to have a real, deep, intimate faith, a personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's not enough, or and it wasn't enough, just to go through the motions. Your faith had to be and has to be real. So I think we see God's love in these three promises to hear that God has answered. God promised salvation both to the Gentiles and both to the Jews, and he promised that his Messiah would be the one that divided those for him and those against him. So we see God sending his son, Jesus Christ. We see him sent into the world to be a salvation for those who believe and that have a faith and a relationship with him. We see God providing a way when there was no way before. God provided a way. So then the answer to our original question of what is love it's quite simple. Jesus. God is love. That is the answer to the question of what is love. Romans 5.8 says it's best probably of everything else. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had no way to get there on our own, when we had no way on our own, God provided a way. When we had no way, God provided his son. So what is love? The answer is so simple. God. Jesus is love. Jesus is the physical example of the depth of love that God has for us. Jesus' life is the example of how to love and to treat others. And so Jesus is love. Love is here. Love has arrived. In this holiday season, as, as many are going to struggle with loneliness, perhaps this year more than ever before, people will struggle with loneliness. They'll struggle with depression, with isolation, with feelings of being unloved or being left out or unworthiness. My prayer is that you would follow, and sorry, you would show suit or follow suit and show love 
to others, that you would follow this example of showing Jesus' love to others, not just in how you talk, not just in your words, but also in your actions and how you treat every single person, how you encounter every single person, that this holiday season we would show and live the love of Christ to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Well, thank you for a love that, God, we did nothing to deserve. Jesus, we didn't, do, we didn't do anything to deserve what you did for us. We didn't do anything on our own to deserve your sacrifice on our behalf. And so, God, we thank you for it. God, let us never forget how important that sacrifice was. Let us never forget the, the depth of your love for us. Never, let us never forget how far your love reaches for us. Father, in a holiday season where so many are struggling with feeling unloved, or lonely, or isolated. God, would we help show your love to everyone? Would we be lights of love in the community and in, in, in our families, in, in our neighborhoods? Would we be people that, that just feel loved when they encounter us because they are encountering you? Father, would we truly be your hands and your feet, and would we truly show love to everyone that we meet on a daily basis? Lord, thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen.